Hello and welcome to Enneagram and Coffee, the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Jane Case, and I am so happy to have coffee with you today. In today's episode, we are expanding on the idea that what we reject in ourselves overflows into how we engage with others. I'll be discussing one element for each Enneagram type and how they tend to reject something within themselves how that can show up inside of them, how that impacts their relationships to the people closest to them, and ultimately how they can work through that. We'll move into practical tips for how to start allowing yourself to have space for the things you reject in you, and then how that can positively impact your relationships. First, I have a couple of disclaimers. Number one, we are still in quarantine over here. We are continuing to social distance, so I am working from home, and I am currently sitting on my bedroom floor, and you might hear sounds from my neighborhood. You might hear my little one in the other room having fun. You might hear my husband around the house, things like that, so be warned. Eventually, I'm going to get back into working from an office, and the sound will be my fault again, but for now, we get to blame quarantine. I also need to tell you about my new online course all about relationship and the Enneagram. This is the topic I'm asked about more than anything else, and I wanted to take my time and really make sure I had something for you that was truly thorough and robust, and by golly, I've done it. I'm launching my Enneagram and Relationships course, and it is one of the biggest programs I've ever made. It is full of so much content. I'm breaking it all down and delivering the first round of attendees live though. So we're going to do a beta launch where you run through me the first round. I'm delivering each workshop live and I'm more available to you in the beginning than I will be long term. Stay to the end of the episode for more details or you can go ahead and go to the website enneagramandcoffee.com to check it out and grab your seat today. Early bird tickets are only open for this week, so don't miss your chance to save a little money on the cost of the program. Now let's jump in to type one. For type one, I talked about how rejecting your own ability to lack attention to detail can lead into your rejection of how other people may lack attention to detail. I deliberately didn't choose perfection for this one because I think perfection is a tricky concept to really pin down. So while yes, the title given to type ones is often the perfectionist, I think I really do prefer reformer personally. It's kind of the feeling that there is always something that could be better. I went a little more specific by saying lack of attention to detail here because I do think that's what a lot of type ones don't allow for themselves. They expect themselves to meet an internal standard and that is so high that they always fall just a little bit short. It's the small things that could have done just a tiny bit better. When we reject our own ability to not see it all, to not catch all of the mistakes we create in an internal environment where our worth is always on the chopping block, then we're never quite good enough for our own approval. When our internal environment and internal narrative is such that we're always on the chopping block, we may start to find that overflowing into other areas of our life. I honestly don't think it looks like type 1's analyzing how others should be better most of the time. I would say most type 1's more so feel like they're harder on themselves than they ever would be for someone else. But because they're so focused on not missing anything, there's this underlying assumption that others would want to know too. If your tag is out, if you could be doing a particular task more effectively, if there's a typo, you have trained your inner voice to not let any of those things slide. So when you see it happening to someone else, there's almost an assumption that they'd want to know too, that they wouldn't want to live with the shame of a missed detail either. 
Well, for you, this is an act of consideration. For others, it can seem like only seeing where they are falling short and not taking note of where they've gone right. You can aid your relationships by intentionally calling out the good you see too. But if you want to make lasting change to your relationship, to yourself long-term, to others, you can truly alter your inner dialogue to allow for more gray areas. Choosing language like play, experiment, these things can breed an internal space safe for missed details. You can also intentionally choose progress over perfection. Let things out the door before every detail has been met. This is a muscle that needs to be built, and it won't happen overnight, but it can be glorious when practiced regularly. Malika Starnes, a lovely type 1 friend of mine, told me in her summit interview that choosing excellence over perfection has really worked for her mentality. There will always be a detail that goes overlooked. It will never be perfect, but that doesn't mean it can't be excellent. I loved that mindset shift as a really good place to start your journey to allowing. For type 2s, I chose selfishness. I chose the word selfishness intentionally because I know it's a hot button for most type 2s. I could have chosen to say your own needs, which is a bit more easy to accept, but I chose selfishness because I want you to take this seriously. I want it to feel uncomfortable for you. So many times my type 2s start their growth journey and they think that basic self-care is blatant selfishness. The very concept of meeting your own needs feels like you are somehow subtracting from the needs of others. When in reality, I think it feels like that because you're so focused on meeting the needs of the people in your life without meeting your own needs and that there's a bit of a vacuum that's being created. The only way that selflessness works is if you are first tending to your own needs and giving from your overflow. Otherwise, your selflessness ultimately becomes a burden on those you love. When you give and give and give and expect nothing in return, you create an internal environment that is hostile to any sign of need. You reject the idea that you are in need and that you need others. There becomes a belief that you are the needed, not the needer. When over-identifying with that idea, we lose sight of the beautiful reciprocity that relationship requires. A true healthy dynamic demands for both people to be tending to themselves and then giving from that overflow into supporting the other when necessary. If a vacuum is created where one is giving and not receiving from themselves, then they will start to think that the other person in the relationship can never quite do enough to make them feel loved. This puts undue burden on your relationships to fill a need that was never theirs to fill and to be a level of grateful that doesn't match the help they've received. You will start to see them putting themselves first as selfishness because you are so in need of support that you feel a lack and therefore assume that everyone else does too. Therefore, solidifying the idea that when we give to ourselves, we somehow take from others. You can begin to immediately aid your relationships today by not giving with with intention to receive. Only give when you are doing it without expectation that you will even receive a thank you in return. To create a lasting relationship to healing this particular area, I encourage you to embrace the concept of selfishness. Start to consider a sort of righteous selfishness that actually serves you and your relationships in the long term. Consider that every relationship you have is a continuation of the relationship that you have to yourself. Therefore, the more you embrace meeting your own needs, the more you will have to offer those that you care about. Consider also that the healthiest relationships you will have in life will come from those that aren't created with a vacuum, meaning you are both tending to your own needs and to the needs of one another so the air is always moving in all directions. But if the other person is giving to themselves and you're giving to them, then the air is only moving toward them and being taken from you. This is a slippery slope to intolerance for them getting their needs met, an inevitable depletion for you. For type threes, I chose failure. 
the idea that you reject failure in yourself and then ultimately reject failure in others. In this post, I wrote failure specifically, but as I've sat with this for a bit, I'd really like to change this word to stagnation. Type threes correct me if you disagree here, but I feel like the most rejected concept for you is the idea of stagnation or complacency, settling for less than you deserve, less than the best, less than tackling at all. In a training I did once at a corporation, I took the company values and we discussed which types may be more easily able to attain certain values over others and how you can lean on someone else to help you recognize the importance of them all. One of the type threes in the room asked me, but shouldn't we be able to do them all to have this job? Now, this is a classic example of type three's rejection of complacency spilling over into expectations for others. They see a list of attributions and they think to themselves, I can be these things. And they figure out how to be the person to fill that role instead of finding the role that fits their person. There's obviously a longer conversation to be had about company values and type, but that's for a different day and a different episode. For the sake of this conversation, I want to focus on the fact that type threes see a list of attributes and they think to themselves, I can be these things. And they figure out how to be the person to fill that role instead of finding the role that fits their person. This seems idyllic, but it often doesn't serve our threes. This can prevent them from staying focused on their mental health because they're so focused on not settling that they leave little room for truly thriving internally. When this bleeds over into relationships, it can create an environment where the type three becomes the life coach of the people they're trying to love. Being their motivator instead of their friend, partner, or lover, they may feel pressure to take on the success of those that they care about as if it's their own. While this seems lovely in theory, it can start to feel like you aren't accepted as you are by the people who love you the most. Like you should be doing more, striving harder, when maybe you just need to rest. It can also look like an intolerance for people who are settling, a distaste for people who are having a hard time making something work, putting themselves out there, or blending into the expectations of their environment. You can start to aid your relationships today by simply not giving advice, but asking good questions. Assuming that those in your life know what they need, but may just want your support as they navigate how to get there on their own. Now for long-term healing on this journey, start to ask yourself why when you start to feel guilty for standing still. If you are comfortable and that feels wrong for some reason, ask yourself why you feel the need to change things. The biggest shift I'd love to see you make is prioritizing your mental health over everything else. Ask yourself how you feel every day and make the necessary changes to make the journey of success feel better than what you think achieving the result is going to feel like. If the journey is a delight, then it takes a lot of pressure off of how long it takes to get to your destination. For type fours, I chose the word ordinary. Now, I no longer say that fours like to feel unique. I don't think that's the thing here. I do think they feel an unnerving pressure to be special, significant, or remarkable. But they have a lack of connection to how to make that happen, so they sometimes settle for feeling misunderstood. So when I wrote about type fours rejecting being ordinary in themselves and therefore in others, maybe a better word here is average. There's almost an allowance for failure, but not an allowance for average. I think type fours have an underlying pulse inside of them that tells them they're supposed to be something truly remarkable. And if they can't do that, they may as well give up. This can bleed out into relationships when you find yourself being the judge and jury for what isn't average. When you are interested in what others have to share because it's not up to your standard of interesting. When you demand others meet you with authenticity, even before the trust has been built for them to do so. When you feel disappointed with the people in your life for not being or thinking in ways that keep you fascinated by them. It can create a dynamic where people feel like they can't be themselves without feeling like they're not enough for you. 
And so they hold back even more from you, making it kind of a cycle where you always feel like you're not experiencing authentic connection with those that you care about. People don't open up when they feel judged, and authenticity isn't first response for everyone. For some, there's a trust that needs to be built before they will want to go deeper with you. And that trust is built through acceptance. If the acceptance as they are isn't found, then they won't give you more of them to know long term. You can aid your relationship now by asking more questions than telling about your experience. Often your route to achieving authentic connection is through authentic sharing of your experience and not through asking about the experiences of others. If you want to build trust and not just be heard, then you can do that through asking more questions. Now for long-term healing, start to see the wonder in the average. Normal life is pretty magical if you think about it. The birds chirp every morning. Most of us prepare three meals a day every day. How fascinating. See the mundane as a ritual instead of routine. It can be really healing to value this instead of reject it. The fours that I've seen do this do it beautifully and live rich, intricate, and connected lives. It also allows for us to stay present with the experiences of those you're connecting to as they explore their self-expression in relationship to you. Their ordinariness will be seen as consistent, stable, and safe instead of boring or uninspired. For type fives, I chose incompetence. Type fives have little room for themselves to be uninformed. They may find themselves not speaking out on issues, concepts, or ideas until they feel like a true expert. The trouble here is that who gets to decide if you're an expert? Outside of a traditional schooling scenario, you aren't really given clear instructions or standards for how to live up to expert status on any given topic. The reality is that there really is always more to learn on any topic in our lives, and even the so-called experts aren't done learning, or shouldn't be in my opinion. This leads to a bit of imposter syndrome that can run like a current in the background of our fives. The question of, am I qualified to really be talking about this, can really easily bleed over into their experience with other people. When you reject your own lack of information, you may find yourself needing others to prove their credentials to you. This seems right in theory because you want those teaching on a given topic to be informed. However, it's challenging in close proximity because it can create an environment where feelings and personal experiences aren't valued. In relationship, when our feelings and experiences aren't valued, we end up lacking a sense of intimate connection and safety to try. You can aid your immediate relationships now by honoring the experiences of people who are sharing. For long-term healing, you can start to think of it as less as knowing everything on a topic and more about knowing more than you used to know on a topic and shedding light into that area. The willingness to share and express even when you aren't 100% an expert will only aid others in their ability to connect with you and express themselves to you. The type fives I've seen do this do so beautifully. They hold incredible space for others to feel without being shaken themselves and serve as kind of a steady, unshakable rock to the people they care about. So for type six, I chose risk. One of the things I've quit saying about type six as much is the idea of worst case scenario thinking. While this is a major part of the type structure that I've learned in several trainings, I still have heard so many type sixes say that's not quite it. What has felt more accurate is the need to feel prepared. This is less of that squirrely, speedy, anxious feeling and more like common sense preparation, which I think is how it does feel for most of the sixes that I've known and learned from. This desire for preparation can make it feel like such common sense to think things through that we don't take necessary risks that are a natural part of living a satisfying life. Sometimes we need to close our eyes and leap to get where we want to go. I can hear multiple sixes as I say this, some saying I don't have a problem with taking these leaps and others saying no preparation feels pretty strong. 
So I'm going to stay there in the middle of those two. While there is some need for preparation, there's also some need for accepting that we cannot tell the future and we will never be fully prepared. When we reject a lack of preparation in ourselves, that can easily bleed over into our view of other people. Not trusting or respecting those that haven't thought something all the way through. Wanting the people in your life to make the safe choice. Pushing the big old pause button on plans for the future so that you can have time to think things through. Choosing the known and the comfortable over the unknown and the magical. You may find that the people in your life feel unsupported with their dreams and plans because they present them to you. They're met with all the ways in which they think they may not work. For you, this is a logical step in working toward any new plan. Think it through, right? But for them, they may just need a bit of belief and encouragement in that moment. You may find yourself taking the position of judge and jury as to what is fully preparing for something and what is not. You can aid your relationships immediately by creating separation between cheerleading sessions and planning sessions. Sometimes we just need to be told that we can do it. Other times we need support in nailing down the details. Asking what the people in your life need before offering is the easiest way to know which is which. To create lasting healing on this topic, you will need to create room in your internal dialogue for belief in the unknown, for believing the best is possible. You can start this process through looking back at all of the things in your life that haven't quite worked out and tracking back to what wouldn't have happened. That's a good thing if this hadn't happened. So what I mean by this is look back at your life and think of something that in the moment you thought, this is too hard, I can't do this, or I wish this hadn't happened. And then look into the course of your life and start to take note of where in your life did you go because that changed your course that you wouldn't regret, that you don't regret. There's so many examples of this in my life. I think if I hadn't burnt out in my photography business and needed to take a break, I would have never decided to work at a random coffee shop for a few months while I got back on my feet and I wouldn't have met my husband. Little things like that, you know, in the moment feel like bad things, but overall actually create magic in our lives. For type seven, I chose negativity. It took me forever to understand that I run away from my negative emotions. I used to think I was so actualized in my feelings because I would be honest when I had them, which took practice to do, by the way, it didn't really come naturally for me. But even after I was honest with myself and others that negative emotions existed, I was a bit blind to how my avoidance of them ruled my life. It was a realization that my avoidance was a bit like a radar detector, isolating the source of my sadness, anxiety, anger, frustration, and seeking to eliminate it. Other times it looked like good vibes only mantras that eliminated the opportunity for pushing through hard things with people and getting to the other side. I was and still am at times particularly set off by negativity, and the more I'm able to recognize that I naturally don't allow negativity to have a home in my psyche and therefore I don't have any space for it when others bring theirs to the table, really allowed me to get honest about what my work was. When I don't allow negativity to live in my psyche, a few very key things occur. First, I escape the present moment in attempts to not feel these emotions. I think of how good the future will be in an attempt to live there. Two, I don't think projects and ideas through enough to accurately project risk. Or three, I lower my tolerance for people who have normal human experiences with me. Where you don't have room for your own negativity, you really don't have room for it in others. This can make it hard to sit through difficult conversations that are necessary to create meaningful relationships. It can make people feel like you aren't interested in listening to them share their struggles. It can give them the message that you aren't interested in them as they are, but only them as you want them to be. 
This brings us back to the toxic positivity conversation that we've had on the feed before. Toxic positivity is when we overuse and overgeneralize positivity, injecting it into all scenarios. This leads us to invalidating the honest human experience that is innately going to contain less than positive feelings and experiences. This can be damaging to ourselves and our ability to be fully emotionally functioning, but it harms our relationships as the people in our life need a safe place to be fully human too. You can begin to immediately aid your relationships by noting your desire to tell folks to look on the bright side or saying things like, it's not that bad, people have it worse. Notice your desire to make everyone happy again and instead try loving them where they are. To start the healing process for yourself, you may have to start with learning to sit still to even notice what feelings are there. We're clever as type 7s and keeping ourselves just busy enough to not have to pay attention to how we are feeling. There's always something to do to keep us distracted. However, if we were honest with our experience, we may start to pick up on some things that hurt there. Anger, sadness, or fear that once we acknowledge them start to have a place in our mind. Taking time every day to be still and get in your body will be the quickest way to access and experience your emotions. Be mindful of your desire to do a gratitude meditation and opt instead for something like yoga nidra, which brings awareness to your body and allows you to be fully present. For type 8s, I chose weakness. For some reason, I feel particularly tender to this rejection. The idea that you aren't allowed to experience weakness feels like the most exhausting thing in the world to me. I think of the type 8s in my life and how they always stand firm, and being in their presence makes me feel so safe, like I can lean into them, like I can relax, like I don't have to take charge. I love that feeling, and I'm aware as we navigate this conversation that so many of them don't have a place like that, a place to feel taken care of. Rejecting your own weakness can look like powering up when you should be taking a nap. It can look like choosing strength over vulnerability. It can look like being the one people are dependent on, but not being able to ask for support yourself. It can look like choosing injury over defeat. One of the ways this can show up for our eights in relationship is unlearning their defensive stance, unlearning the part of themselves that wants to stay strong instead of vulnerable. Many eights have expressed to me a fear that their vulnerability will be used against them later, so they keep it close to their chest. Yet, vulnerability breeds trust, and trust is what you need to feel safe to be vulnerable. And man, that's a rough cycle to rewire. It so beautifully feeds itself. When we reject our own weakness, we also find that we reject the weakness in others. I heard an Enneagram teacher say once that eights can smell weakness. I'm inclined to say that eights pick up on people quickly in general, but there is an element of truth to the statement. When you pick up on people quickly and and you're on the lookout for power dynamics, you become increasingly aware of where you can and cannot put your leader hat down. Eights are equipped and they have an eye for inefficiencies and vulnerabilities. Much like how our twos keep their eyes open for need, eights keep their eyes open for holes in the system that need to be filled, and they feel equipped to fill them, and at times, obligated to. Someone has to take charge, and if no one else will, I guess I have to step in. That kind of thing. This means that any perceived weakness in others is not only distasteful because it's the very thing you reject in yourself, but it's also a giant neon blinking sign screaming at you that you can't take a break. Not yet. You're still needed. I also think it's important to distinguish weakness from vulnerability here. It's are particularly empathetic to vulnerable and annoyed by the weak. I think the easiest way I've come to understand that is through the understanding of power dynamics. The one in power can be weak, and those being oppressed can be strong in spirit. Being oppressive and being strong aren't synonymous. 
For a type A, it's wanting to aid your relationships immediately. You can start by choosing vulnerability over strength. If you find yourself in a conversation about your feelings that doesn't seem to be going anywhere except to conflict town, ask yourself if you could be 10% more vulnerable. Is there a bit more vulnerability you could bring to the table to invite connection? In your long-term healing of this particular area, it's important that you try a different inner dialogue, one that invites and celebrates your weaknesses, one that embraces your limitations and delights in your humanity. Yoga is a great place to start as you learn to listen to your body and accept its limitations. You'll be able to accept them elsewhere as well. In addition, asking for support when you feel the need. It's weird at first, but just call someone up. Ask if they can be there for you on a specific issue. Maybe it's a professional at first and then friends and loved ones. Feel how good it feels to accept full support without reciprocation. No keeping score. For type 9s, I chose being hard to get along with. I think of this as the type 9's tendency to create a very safe space for others. I think of the type 9's that I know, and I think of them as a place where I can be 100% honest about my opinions without fear of rejection. What's fascinating about that is that in order for that space to exist, there is some innate self-rejection that has to occur on the part of our 9's. The self-forgetting where they push their preferences, opinions, values aside in order to allow me to have mine without fear. It's beautiful in theory, but the problem is that when our nines limit their access to being difficult, they limit their access to being seen for who they are in their fullness. I think sometimes when we hear talk about the nine self-forgetting, it can be misconstrued for being meek. I don't think of nines as being meek. Rather, I think of them as being balls of fire that don't feel the need to show everyone how bright they shine. This brightness that is continually dimmed for the comfort of others is left misunderstood by others and often even by themselves. They may have a hard time knowing what they want or need and even taking stands for the things that they're passionate about. When this bleeds over onto others, they may find themselves irritated by those that don't go with the flow or have strong needs that create friction. They may find that they're over-sacrificing to the point of resentment and eventually anger toward those that they've been trying to make comfortable. They may end up holding back their opinions for so long that they end up coming out sideways. Like a deer learning to walk for the first time, type nines may begin asserting themselves a bit clumsily, and there can be relational casualties as a result. If type nines want to begin aiding their relationships immediately, they can focus on not pointing out the other perspective when someone is complaining to you. So instead, show up for them and be present with their experience without forcing another perspective on them. You are naturally accustomed to seeing all sides, and while it is nice, it can also feel invalidating to those who need your support in that moment and need to take a side or stand with them. As you venture into long-term healing on this topic, you will want to start with speaking up when not directly asked to speak. What I mean by this is interjecting yourself and your opinions, owning your space in a room, and trusting that people are curious about what you have to share. The reason I'm pushing you to do this is that once you start building the speaking up muscle, It becomes easier and easier to do when you need to, but it's going to feel like an unnatural process at first, and I don't want to sugarcoat that. The type nines that really embrace their voice have so much wisdom to share and add a ton of value to the world. We are all better when you speak up, and your relationships greatly benefit from your ability to take a stance. Now, as a reminder, my course, Enneagram and Relationships, is officially open for early bird tickets. This is the lowest price it will ever be as we prepare for its beta launch. So right now it is on sale for $147 during the early bird beta process. Then after the early bird week ends, one week from the day that this episode goes live, we will 
enter into our beta pricing, which is $197. And then the course will turn into an evergreen course that stays on my website long term, but the price will be $297. So if you want to get it at its lowest price of all time, it's right now. A few things that I'm going into in the course. So we're going into basics of the Enneagram. We're going to talk about how to self-type for those who don't have their type. How you discover your partner's type and how to have those conversations with them if they're not interested in the Enneagram at all. We're going to go into my philosophy around how to create a healthy relationship. What can we control? What can't we control? And then we'll go into type-specific work. How to better love yourself. Your journey to health is your type. What is your work in relationships? How to love the person of that type. Boundary setting is your type. Questions to ask your partner. Conflict as your type. Type pairing specific information. So what's it look like when a type two and a type eight together? What are some things that could come up? What are some things that could arise? I'll have an episode specifically for this coming out soon, but it won't be until after the early bird rate is over. So if you want to save that money, check the link in my show notes and grab your seat today. I would love to have you. Until next time, I'll see you in the next episode.